All right. Um, well, we're almost just about out of time. So how about I begin the, uh, the introductions and so forth. Um, welcome everyone to The Torch of Progress. This is the speaker series for our online learning program, Progress Studies for Young Scholars, uh, which you can find at progressstudies.school is the, is the website. Uh, Progress Studies for Young Scholars is an online learning program in the history of technology aimed at uh, high school ages and up. Um, we are aiming at, uh, at teenagers right now, but soon we'll have an offering for adults as well. So if you are interested in the history of progress, then uh, and, in, and even if you're older than, uh, than teens, go ahead and sign up and we're, uh, we're going to have something for you soon. Um, before we dive into today's event, I just want to tell you about a couple of other upcoming ones that are scheduled. Next week at, uh, um, on Wednesday, July 22nd at 10 a.m. Pacific, we're going to have Anton Howes, the uh, author of the recent book, Arts and Minds, a history of, the, uh, of Britain's uh, Royal Society for Arts. And after that, on a Wednesday, July 29th, also 10 a.m. Pacific, uh, Danica Ramey, the uh, president of the Asteroid Institute, is going to join us and give a talk on asteroids and how we can protect the Earth from asteroid impacts, which is the mission um, of the Institute. Uh, I am your host, Jason Crawford. I write the website, The Roots of Progress, uh, which you can find at rootsofprogress.org, about the history of technology and the philosophy of human progress. And uh, with me today is Noor Siddiqui who is a, uh, the co-founder and CEO of ORCID Bioscience, um, which we'll be talking about a little bit today. So thank you and welcome, Noor. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. I think that uh, you know, what you're doing is extremely impressive. So I'm, I'm super honored to be here and uh, to join you guys today. Great. Thanks. Well, it's, it's great to have you. Um, so, we'll, uh, so we'll do an interview for about uh, 40, 45 minutes or so, and then we'll open it up to um, the audience for questions. As always, we'll be prioritizing questions from our uh, enrolled students, um, which you all can find that in the class uh, Slack. Um, anyone else, feel free to ask questions in the uh, chat as we go along, um, and we'll, uh, we'll get to them towards the end. So this is the first time we've actually had someone come on this uh, speaker series uh, uh, who's, uh, who's actually, I, um, we're, we're interviewing about kind of the frontier of technology. I was about to say first founder. You're not the first founder because we brought Patrick Collison on, but I actually didn't talk to him about Stripe. And we, spent the, <laughs> we, spent, we spent the whole time talking about progress studies uh, instead, since obviously that's one of his um, interests. But uh, Noor, I brought you on because you're at the frontier of an exciting area of technology in, in genetics. Um, and also because you've just had such an interesting kind of life story and, and educational, you know, history and, uh, and, and, a, and a somewhat non-conventional path, which I always think is, is interesting um, and, and love to explore. So I uh, would love to spend, we'll, we'll spend about the first half of this um, talking about your side of sort of educational and career path. And then maybe we can get into uh, genetics and, uh, you know, some of the interesting things on the frontier. Cool. Um, this is going to be a little less scripted than some of the previous ones where I wrote down a bunch of questions in advance and I'm going to just sort of improvise a little bit. So we'll, we'll just have a conversation. Uh, since we've got so many uh, of, the, of the audience and our students are in high school, let's just start there. What was uh, your high school experience like? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I grew up in um, Northern Virginia, like the suburbs of Washington, D.C. And um, yeah, I went to a public high school 
called Robinson Secondary. I was an IB program. And um, I think just like everyone else, my, my dream was, you know, to, to go to college. My parents' dreams for me had always been to, to go to college. And then um, I found out about the TL Fellowship when I was, um, yeah, about 17. And it was basically love at first sight. It was like, I had never been presented with an option like this. And as soon as I saw this option, I was like, this is the option that I definitely want. And, um, you know, obviously I thought that there was like zero chance of me, um, you know, getting accepted to this thing, zero chance of my parents, you know, being okay with it or um, much less excited about it. Um, but I just sort of applied in secret anyways, kind of against their their guidance and wishes. And then, um, yeah, I was super fortunate to get uh, a chance to interview. And then the interview also is sort of solidified my, um, uh, I guess my initial, uh, my initial excitement about it. I just met this group, this group of people that was, um, I had such synchrony with, I was just like, oh, these are like people who are super optimistic about building things and um, you know, already had had this like cool track record of making stuff. And um, yeah, just, I didn't have that. Uh, I didn't have that group of friends where I grew up. I think most people, um, yeah, like their, their ambition was to go into into government, into into law, into medicine, like pretty like conventional and tracked career paths. So um, it was really, really exciting for me to meet uh, people my age and also people older than me who were, who were who are doing all of, um, you know, the, the basically who are, who are following through on uh, their dreams and their ambitions. And then, um, for, yeah. Uh, for after, people who don't, yeah. for who don't know about it, just tell people what exactly is the Teal Fellowship? Sure. Yeah. So the, the Teal Fellowship is a, um, is a grant, a hundred K grant from Peter Teal to uh, basically work on an idea, usually a company uh, for two years. And the condition of the, um, of the funding is that, uh, you you focus full time on the company, so that means you can't be in school at the same time. So it was, I think, very controversial in 2012. Much less controversial in uh, 2020. I think that it was kind of like um, you know breaking the four minute mile, where uh, no one broke the four minute mile, and then you know the the first person got that 359, and then very quickly within the same year, four or five other people uh, broke four minutes. So I think there was this huge psychological barrier before you know, around in 2012, 2011 timeframe where the only path after high school was college. And I think that since then uh, the fellowship, and I think it spawned a lot of other, um, a lot of other sort of uh, programs or um, basically copycats, I guess, who are helping um, like further this idea that, you know, the only path uh, after high school isn't, isn't college. It's also, um, yeah, follow, following through, through on a company or following through on a, a on research or um, I think uh, Obama's Obama's daughter, she's, she, she took a gap year to travel, uh, do military service. I think it's just become more normalized to um, yeah. do something else besides college immediately after high school. Yeah. Um, and so did you already have, uh, were you already interested in being a founder in, in entrepreneurship in high school? Did you even have a business that you wanted to start or what was your uh, uh, disposition towards that? When you heard yeah, so in, in high school, I was actually working on a nonprofit. So I was really focused on, I had this, this very jarring experience, I think about 12 or 13, where a kid from suburbia goes to Pakistan, where my parents grew up and had this very quintessential experience of like coming face to face with extreme poverty. So I was just like playing in the street with um, a girl my age, like I think we were like playing soccer or something. And, um, you know, my parents came out of the store and then she asked me for money and I just started breaking down crying because I, you know, I didn't know that she didn't have parents and that, you know, that was what was going on. And I think after that experience, I just felt this enormous amount of um, 
responsibility to 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 do something because I uh, yeah just growing up in suburbia I never saw that that type of um, wealth disparity or or uh, the idea that uh, yeah you, someone that who someone who I would I could get along with so quickly um, yeah wouldn't have parents or wouldn't have access to any of the things that I did so uh, yeah I started a nonprofit with a group of friends at, at other high schools across um, where I grew up in Northern Virginia and. Uh, we just focus on basically raising money to get grants for different high potential youth, kind of like, I guess, a super mini version of the Teal Fellowship, mini, like less, less impressive version, um, where we were just, you know, finding um, young people through like NGOs distributing ap applications to find high potential youth in sort of like under-resourced areas and then connecting them to some uh, capital and mentorship. So yeah, that was, there, there was one specific um, applicant who uh, was successful in Afghanistan who like really stood out to me. She, um, her father and brother died and she was um, taken care of by her mom. And because um, because she was living in Afghanistan, there was just a huge amount of discrimination against them. Like they were constantly being um, evicted from their housing or the rent was being doubled or tripled because they were saying that, oh, you guys are uh, prostitutes or basically making up false claims against them. And that really affected her um, educational trajectory. So. Um, anyways, long story short, short, we were able to sort of um, connect her with uh, credible mentorship and um, a, a couple of things that allowed her to sort of keep, make her housing a little bit more stable and her um, schooling and um, like tutoring uh, more stable. And uh, yeah, she's just been, been doing really well. And that was the story that I was especially um, excited about. I, th I think the line that I remember from her application was that she said that she wanted to grow up to be a judge in Afghanistan to reform the laws that were, um, you know, preventing her, her and her mom from like competing equally. And I thought that that was a just, yeah, ins insanely um, courageous thing for someone in her position to feel, because I think if, if that were me, I would have felt, um, yeah, just super powerless and just super, um, you know, caught in a corner. So uh, yeah, that's that's like probably the, the case that I was most proud of. Um, but yeah, so yeah, well, I, I guess long, long story short, I, I entered the Teal Fellowship Silicon Valley with a completely, I guess, different background. I think than most other fellows, most other fellows sort of like were like midway through college, like their sophomore, maybe some, some of them their junior year, had like interned at a couple of tech companies, had products, um, had like been interested in video games or like software their, their whole life. And um, yeah, that, that definitely wasn't me. So when I entered, it was sort of this whole new world of, um, oh, you can like build a product in your garage and like scale it to uh, millions or billions of people. And like these crazy people called VCs will like give you funding to, to do this. Um, so it was definitely a huge culture shock. Um, yeah, from, from, from DC and seeing people like very focused on uh, credentials and um, yeah. yeah, which, you know, do you, do you work for this like large company? Um, it, was a, it was a very, very different, um, uh, different environment to step yeah. into. Yeah. So did it feel, uh, you know, how, how did it feel to take like a highly non-conventional path? Was it uncomfortable? Was it frightening? Uh, you know, what, what, what were your, what did, psychologically, what, you know, what, what did you have to deal yeah, with? Yeah, I think it's really funny because people always say this. They always ask, you know, what was I scared? And it, it was actually, it did not feel like a brave choice at all. It felt like this is the extremely obvious thing that would be better for me to do than college. Um, I don't know. I, it's, it's funny because people always ask, you know, did, it, did I feel scared? And there was literally zero, there was zero fear. And I, and I don't mean that from like a bravery standpoint. It just meant, I just mean it from like a, 
oh, here are my two options. Like I can go do what everyone else is going to do and has like a very, um, you know, defined outcome, or I can go do this like really weird thing, which has like a completely undefined outcome. And to me, like the, the option of doing the fellowship was just immediately more exciting and was also more, more directed. I mean, what I, what I always wanted to do was to like learn how to build things that, that helped people. I think the initial, um, the initial, um, a manifestation of that was this nonprofit, and then uh, after seeing, you know, sort of where where nonprofits break, um, you know, they have is issues with, um, you know, acquiring talent because they can't pay enough. They have issues with sustainability. Um, yeah, that's when I just got more excited about, you know, building building companies and you know not being so afraid of of turning a profit and seeing how how profit the profit motive can actually help, you know, scale and make things. Um, yeah, make things bigger and better than sometimes a, a nonprofit can. I mean, what I was working on initially was, um, yeah, basically a, a platform to help people um, learn and earn money at the same time. And if you think about like works programs, like what is the company that employs the most people, right? Like Amazon or Walmart employ millions of people, right? So a lot of these nonprofits that are working on um, ways to yeah, basically, yeah, teach a man, teach a man the fish, like create uh, work for for um, for people. I mean, if you if you take that to the, to the if, if you look at who's been the most successful at that, it's, you know, these, these large profit generating companies, right? It's not nonprofits. So I think some of that, um, yeah, some of that just, just made it more clear to me that uh, if I really wanted to have um, a large impact, help a lot of people, like a, a really good way to, to measure and to know whether you're helping someone is do they want to pay you for what you're doing? And um, yeah, a really good way to yeah, be able to get the best people is to be working on something that, um, uh, you know, is yeah, working on something new and uh, unusual that like has technical challenges and that has um, you know some 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 degree of market risk. Those are the types of um, problems that really talented people are going to be attracted to and want to want to jump into. Yeah. So just going back to to the question a bit, in, in terms of it's really interesting to me and yet not surprising that it felt totally natural to you to go take an alternate path. Um, I think there are, I think some people are just like that. And I think, but I don't think that that's the um, maybe dominant or majority kind of attitude. I think, you know, more typical would be to be concerned about it. I, I'm curious, do you have any insight? What do you think is different about your mentality, psychology, or just the way you think that, that made it feel completely natural to you to go do this completely, you know, unorthodox thing? Hmm. I don't know. It's actually so funny. I feel like people often ask me you know, what makes you different. And I actually don't think I'm, uh, you know, that different than other people. I think that, uh, yeah, no, I feel like there's always this sort of like founder mysticism or, you know, grandiosity that people inject onto people. Um, and I think that, I think everyone has this like excitement. I think everyone has, has dreams. Every, everyone, you know, if you talk to them, there's like certain things that they light up, light up about. And I think it's just a matter of um, maybe how seriously they take them. And uh, for me, I just, I just feel like I was really lucky that I saw these sparks, these examples of other people uh, going after their dreams and succeeding. And I think that maybe that was a difference for me. So for me, at this really young, impressionable age of 17, I was able to get exposure to, you know, all these people who are just like, basically just going after their dreams, no matter like how ridiculous and, and crazy they sounded. And I think that um, seeing so many people both fail you know, multiple times at doing that and then succeeding or just continually failing or continually succeeding um, just just made me, just, it just opened the door to the opportunity. I think a lot of it is just um, mimetic, right? It's just being able to see uh, see an example of someone else doing something. It's like, hey, yeah, I could do that, right? 
And um, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes you only need one example. <laughs> you could, it could be 99% of the world going one way, but if you see one example of somebody doing a different thing, it gives you the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, it's just, it's just the idea. I mean, if you have these blinders on, which, which I did all through, you know, school, which is, hey, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to be a lawyer because I'm going to be an engineer and a lawyer because, you know, my dad's an engineer and a lawyer. And I think that that's cool. I'm um, sure it's still cool that he does that. But um, yeah, I just didn't realize that there were so many like other things that I could do. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think just getting that exposure and um, but yeah, it was probably what, what it was for me. I mean, I, I don't know. I think I just like adventure. I, I just think that it, the, the, the cooler thing to do is like one that has like more uncertainty, I guess. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I feel like you're the same way, so. <laughs> in, in some ways, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, uh, this isn't about, this is, interview isn't about me, but I dropped out of high school halfway through um, yeah. to basically just like teach myself for, for two years. Um, then I did the more conventional thing and I went, I went to college kind of on the normal schedule. Um, but yeah, but yeah uh, it, it's, it's uh, like I said, it's just interesting. I think there's just some people who don't, who aren't at all worried about doing the unconventional thing and, um, it's, it's, it's curious. So, uh, okay, let's move on just a little bit. So you, so you did the Teal Fellowship, you started a company before Orchid, right? So this was Remedy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, t- tell just a little bit about the Remedy story and maybe what are some of the lessons learned um, coming out of that? Yeah, so cool. So, so Remedy was, um, was software for doctors to help them uh, communicate with each other. So uh, we started out on, um, on Google Glass building um, basically a video collaboration tool that allowed surgeons to um, monitor nurses who were kind of doing like wound care or different things that required monitoring. And um, yeah, I think like the, so the, the product like ended up iterating a, a million different ways. Google Glass ended up not being the platform that we wanted to work with um, because the, the, the device is actually like heating up too fast on nurses' faces, like burning the side of their faces. So uh, video streaming is, off, is, off, is obviously pretty, um, you know, intensive. So uh, yeah, we, we ended up moving to like a mobile product. And I think like the, the main learnings from, from um, yeah, Remedy, the first company was like, you know, how to raise money, how to build a product, how to build a team, how to like actually get paid in a healthcare environment. I think that um, we probably made a mistake for like at least six months to a year of like just assuming that whatever doctors wanted, people would pay for. Um, doctors often like don't have a budget. Um, there's often uh, enormous amount of red tape in um, hospitals, like year-long uh, purchase processes. So actually navigating and f- figuring out, okay, like who are the entities who can pay for a thing? Who are the thing? Who are the entities that benefit from a thing? And um, yeah, it, it's actually it, it's kind of funny because I think I, I look at a lot of um, digital health companies today, and I feel like yeah, the first year is just making this mistake that. Uh, you know, just because you make something that someone uses, it's not a consumer product where like the consumer can just pay for it. There's like this weird geometry that you have to navigate of like, okay, who actually has the purse strings? Okay, one, one entity who has the ability to, um, yeah, sign a contract. And then, uh, yeah, like is, is your thing useful enough that they want to you know, sign again over a year or is it just this like point solution that solves them in this, you know, really, um, yeah, this really sporadic or ephemeral um, amount of time. So, yeah, I think the first year we were basically just like following, you know, surgeons and doctors around and like building whatever they said they wanted to build, prototyping it, and then sort of learning slowly that, okay, just because this like succeeded in a study doesn't mean that this is, uh, you know, a, a good thing to, to build on, on the company side, yeah, just in terms of how quickly we could sign. Um, but yeah, I think, I guess, we're working forward maybe two or three years into the company, um, we were able to solve a lot of those problems, but I think 
um, you know, my inevitable decision to go to school was just about, um, uh, you know, a long-term impact. I just thought about, you know, I, I was constantly getting this question of like, oh, like, do you want this to be your life's work? And like reflecting on that and like, you know, obviously thinking that what we were doing was, was important, was helping patients, but um, just reflecting and thinking and that, no, like the thing that I really want my life's work to be is, you know, more in the realm of what ORCID is doing and that um, I didn't feel like I had the uh, research experience or the uh, technical expertise, expertise to go execute on that. And I just had this, like, this gut feeling of, you know, just because, you know, I've, d I've done a bunch of work here, doesn't mean that this is necessarily the biggest thing that I'm going to build. And it was kind of this, this other moment where, like, everyone was saying, um, you know, it was actually funny. My parents had done a reversal where now that the company was doing better, they were thinking, oh, it doesn't make sense to go to college. Like, you're wasting all this work that you put in. <laughs> so they went from, like, saying, you should go to college, not take the deal fellowship, just saying like, don't go to college, do um, continue with the company. Um, but yeah, I just, I think it was just a gut feeling. I was like, this is cool. I feel really proud of myself for having um, built this from zero. And, but at the same time, I, I knew that the, yeah, what I wanted my life's work to be was something different and that I needed to go uh, spend some focused time um, yeah, both meeting the, meeting the experts in the field, understanding the problem better and like building my own expertise. So yeah, in, in 2015, I decided to go to Stanford. And so from 2015 to 2019, um, yeah, I did my undergrad and master's in uh, computer science formally, but you spent a lot of time in um, genomics as well. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, enter or ORCID. I started that at the end of 2019 and we're working on that, that we've just been building since. Cool. Okay, great. I want to hear all about that. Um, before we leave kind of maybe the, uh, uh, you know, sort of educational and career path and, and life lessons, there's a question that I, I typically save to the end, but it fits so naturally in here that I'll just ask it now, which yeah. is, you know, what advice that is commonly given to teenagers or that you heard as a teenager, do you think is actually wrong? Yeah, I think about? actually a lot of advice. So <laughs> there's actually a lot. So I think one is... Um, so these are these are actually not. Um, I have to I have to give the give the caveat that they're not all original for me. I've actually just picked these up from other people, and I was like, oh yeah, it's sure. actually really smart. So one thing that's really cool is that the TL fellowship actually um, uh, lets us interview the new fellows. Like, it gives us we give some input onto like who gets selected. And one really smart thing that I noticed that a applicant did this year was he was saying that, you know, oh, I didn't think that I was good enough to get uh, an internship at one of like the sexy Silicon Valley companies like, you know, Google or um, whatever, OpenAI or something. So he's like, so instead of that, I, t I went and took an internship at like the dumbest possible company, right? Like this old industry that has like no software and then just tried to learn everything about like, why is this process so shitty? I can't even remember what it was because it was so boring, but it was like something and like, um, like manufacturing. And I don't even remember. It was literally so arcane and boring. That I don't even, I can't even remember like the three words that he used to describe it. But I actually think that that's a, a brilliant idea. Like if you're someone who's like really smart and like wants to build things, um, why not be like a big fish in a small pond? Why not like go to some like terrible, horribly backward industry and then just observe how they do things and then be the only person like in the entire space who understands the idiosyncrasies to be able to like modernize it, like build a new like software product or, you know, whatever, whatever it is to, to make that, um, yeah, to make that space that no other like engineers are thinking about better, right? Because I mean, the most natural thing that like, engineers build, right, is like developer tools or um, 
games and there's like so much competition there or like a social app or a consumer app and like there's just really hard to compete there and you know you can just take a um you know playbook from peter Thiel and say like competition is for losers and just go where, where no one else is looking and um you know these 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 older um you know slow to modernize industries like they're they're also going to be begging for like a high schooler or you know um early college student in their career to to join because they probably don't have very much new blood right they're probably you know no one wants to no one wants to to help them. <laughs> no one wants to join, right? So uh, it's actually like this weird uh, like asymmetry where like they really want you to be there. You get to learn a lot. You get to actually build a product that no that you can have like insider knowledge, secret secret knowledge um, that no one else has. So I think that's actually a really good shortcut to like if you want to um, like build something impactful and have a lot of adoption. It's like actually go go work someplace really really bad instead of someplace um, you know traditionally seen as really really good. It's an interesting idea and a and a and a an interesting kind of bet. I mean, on the one hand, it seems that you would like the biggest risk in my mind is that you would actually almost certainly end up with like no mentorship, mm-hmm. um, and and you would not be kind of like growing in a great work environment. Um, on the other hand, if you uh, like, I can see the benefit of going in and getting uh, ex- expertise in some niche industry, um, or maybe even a very important but very obscure industry that then gives you a competitive advantage in figuring out actually how should this entire industry be disrupted with software. Uh, the last company that I worked at before I uh, went full-time exactly. on Exactly, I feel like you have studies, to talk about Flexport right now. <laughs> yeah, was, was, intro for Flexport. was Flexport and Flexport is, you know, um, Ryan Peterson's founder of Flexport and he was able to do that company because he had experience as an importer and with, you know, really obscure things. I mean, not obscure in the grand scheme. I mean, obviously lots of people know, but things that an average consumer would not run into like customs duties and how yeah. difficult and, and complicated is it to, uh, you know, to calculate your customs duties or to do the logistics of importing. And, uh, and so, yeah, when you go into some of these industries, and this is, I think, where maybe a lot of the remaining opportunities are for the next decade or two in software is, um, is in kind of like going into some uh, industries that are not, as well known to the general public uh, or to the average consumer and that are, that haven't really been revamped by software and then going in and figuring out how to fix them. Like, um, yeah, logistics and insurance and uh, you know, all sorts of things that kind of sound boring on the face of them. But if you're willing to kind of get into the details and geek out about it a bit, it can actually be a fascinating problem to solve. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think basically like at every stage of your life, you have certain advantages and disadvantages. And like, as a young person, you shouldn't over index on your disadvantages, right? So what is your disadvantage as a young person? You don't have experience, you don't have a network, right? But what you do have is fresh eyes. And that's actually like surprisingly valuable. So like as a young person, um, like, yeah, don't overfocus on like, oh, this other person has more experience than me. They're like a big network. You should focus on like, hey, well, you know, I'm, a, I'm more of a blank slate. I can sort of just think how would I want this thing to work, right? How would other people like me, like my generation want this thing to work, want this whole industry to work and um, then go build that. And then obviously like, you know, when you're, when you're later in your career, then, you know, you can, you can flex your network and you can flex your experience. And, um, you know, there's, 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 uh, you know, positives and, and negatives to that. So I think as a young person, at least I remember feeling really this like heavy burden of like, oh, I don't have this experience. And, um, you know, how is that um, damaging to me? At least, I guess I'm still pretty young, but at 17, I felt it, it felt you know even more this, um, this uh, I don't know, I guess anxiety about it, which I think was completely misplaced. Like it's actually, um, yeah, it's like a huge, it's a huge um, benefit in a lot of cases. So I think just, just looking for those asymmetries where, um, where is like a, which is just like a fresh take or like the idea, like desire to like learn quickly. Um, where's that going to be 
really useful and really leveraged, I think is, is <laughs> what, I, what I would say my advice is. Yeah. I think you're right about focusing on your strengths. When you're young, what you lack in experience and maturity, you can make up for with uh, energy and enthusiasm. Um, and then, you know, as you get older, it turns out you start to lose your, your total amount of energy. Uh, and so you need to make up for that with increased experience and maturity as you, as you go on. Yeah. There was a... Uh, the, yeah, I, yeah, was just I, gonna, I was just going to quote Steve, right. Steve Blank, um, who's, who said that uh, the older he gets, the less he's able to make a red-eye flight to go visit a customer and make a sales call, but also the better his judgment gets about when does he really need to get on that red-eye flight, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. That's so true, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've noticed even in like a sh super short amount of time, um, the way that, like, my judgment about people and things like that has improved, which, yeah, I, would, I never would have guessed. But I mean, I think, I think the other thing about... Um, about being young that's a huge advantage is is just that um i don't know how to how to phrase this but basically that um like i think as you as you get older you have this um i guess embarrassment that comes a lot easier like think about like an infant right an infant is um willing to make infinite mistakes, like has basically literally no filter on, on what they're going to do. They're just going to go explore literally everything and everything is brand new. And I think as, as we get older, we have this, um, um, I don't know, this like anxiety or this like desire just to appear competent to other people that starts um, closing doors, that starts saying like, oh, I can't like go be a novice at this thing because I'm expert at this thing. And this like expectation that, oh, I have to immediately uh, have a certain level of competence to even enter the room. And I think that that's uh, a, a terrible thing that happens to people that I like definitely don't want to happen to me, but um, I can already see sort of happening in, in small ways. And I think that that's a huge advantage that uh, young people have that's like really under, under hyped, under realized is that, hey, you can like walk into like, hey, you want to go be a physicist? You want to go be a, um, a biologist? You want to go be an engineer? You want to be a dancer? Whatever it is, like people will entertain you to like go gain expertise in that. And then as you get older, um, yeah, you're just less willing to step outside of your, your, your lane. And um, yeah, that, 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 that's just a really dangerous thing, I think, to, to let creep into to your life. Yeah, interesting. Uh, when it comes to potential or capacity for embarrassment, for me personally, I feel like that peaked in my teenage years. Oh, really? Uh, right. <laughs> and then uh, and then was a little lower, but still high in my 20s, and then significantly lower in my 30s. And I just try to lower it all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, until, you know, now it's very difficult for me to be embarrassed, although not impossible. Uh, uh, but yeah, no, that's that's a good insight. Um we're we're getting a little ways into the hour, so let's um let's shift gears. I would love oh. to talk about genetics. Um, yeah. Now I know uh, Orchid still hasn't announced many details about its product, but um, what what can you tell us about what it's doing at this point? Yeah, cool. Yeah, so, so Orchid's mission is to help uh, couples have the healthiest child possible. So the way that we do that is um, we're going to be announcing uh, a set of products that help uh, help parents mitigate uh, genetic diseases that. Um, yeah, they they marry they may carry predisposition genetic predispositions for, uh, yeah. So I can't get into too much of the details, but that's sort of like the, the general uh, focus of what we're working on. And I think that um, there, there's just been so many like, incredible advancements with uh, with IVF or with reproductive technology. So IVF stands for in vitro fertilization, 
And this is the ability to basically help infertile couples. So 15% of couples are, are uh, end up being infertile, helping those couples actually uh, have children. So the way that they do that is they extract um, eggs from the woman's ovaries. They um, take some sperm, fertilize that, that egg and create embryos in a lab. And then those embryos grow a couple of days and um, there's this really amazing uh, like laser that you can use that embryologists can use to, to grab a few cells off of those embryos. And then um, that, uh, that those few cells can be used to actually gather genetic information on that embryo. So basically a day five-year-old human embryo, however you want to call it, 100 cells, um, you know, you can find out, uh, you know, does it carry a, a mutation? Does it carry, um, you know, is it, is it likely to have, have something, um, you know, some, some debilitating condition when, when that child is born? So um, it's, it's, really, it's a really amazing industry that I think is extremely underhyped. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's only 40 years old, but there's been uh, 8 million IVF babies born around the world since then, about 500,000 per year. So uh, one in, I think one in 20 babies have been born through IVF in, in Japan, one in 10 in uh, Copenhagen, like over 200 uh, million are projected to be born uh, over the coming decades. So, you know, women are, ch are choosing to have, um, you know, to have children later. That obviously, you know, means that they're, um, you know, more likely to end up uh, in the IVF clinic. So uh, it's, it's just this really exciting time, this really interesting convergence between the advances that have happened in reproductive medicine that allow uh, these embryos to grow, to be grown in a lab, them to be uh, cryopreserved or frozen and then thawed and implanted into the mother um, years or, or, you know, in a, in a more sci-fi case, decades later. Um, and it, so basically, there's basically been this, this huge amount of uh, advancement in reproductive medicine. And there's also been this huge um, advancement on the computational biology, molecular biology, statistical genetic side that allows that information to actually be interpreted. So it, it wasn't possible before to be able to um, gather such high resolution genetic information on such a small sample. Um, there's, there's a whole host of sort of technical problems there. And yeah, I was, I was, I was going to ask about that. I'd love to go into that. I mean, so in order to do this, they have to literally be able to essentially sequence, correct me if I'm wrong, but sequence the DNA from like a single cell, um, which seems kind of amazing. Like, how do they do that? Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's been, you know, more than uh, 10 or 20 years of uh, a bunch of really smart scientists work is to figure out, um, you know, it, it, so, so many things had to happen, right? Like a, it had to, you know, we had to sequence the human genome, right? That would happen in 2000. That was, uh, you know, a multi-billion dollar project. Uh, it took, I think, yeah, it took, took many hundreds of collaborators around the world uh, to make happen. So we, we sequenced the human genome and then, um, the interpretation process has, has you know, taken you know, well over 20 years, right? So it's 2020 now, and there's still so much we don't know about, um, about, about the human genome, right? So we have just, um, you know, we have 20,000 genes. When we originally sequenced the human genome, we were expecting to have, um, you know, far, we, we, didn't, we didn't know anything as basic as how many genes are in our genome. We expected to have like three or four times the number that we actually discovered, because, you know, there's around 20,000 there's around 20,000 genes in um, you know, much, much simpler species that, that we had sequenced before. And um, sci the, the best scientists in the world thought that, you know, humans certainly must have like, you know, 60,000 or 100,000 uh, genes, right? So that was like the first surprise is that, you know, we didn't even have a map. We didn't even have like the most basic bearings of like, what are we gonna, gonna find here? So we found these 20,000 20, genes. 
And then um, we're like, okay, so what do they do? How do they work? Are they broken? And, you know, just like this very, you know, methodical and slow step-by-step process to actually um, understand what's going on and still, you know, still obviously so much is undiscovered, but we do have these like really beautiful and uh, impressive examples of uh, situations like, you know, SMA, spinal muscular atrophy, where, um, you know, this is like a, a condition that uh, generally kills a child by age two, um, is, a, is a very severe condition that we've actually developed a gene therapy for. So that gene therapy costs about, um, you know, one to $2 million, um, which is, it's really um, unfortunate to see some parents having to, to crowdfund that money just to, to, to pay for um, the therapy. But um, basically since 1992, IVF has been um, preventing the conditions that gene therapy will only one day treat since 1992 for, you know, $20,000 a case, as opposed to uh, $2 million a case. So basically, you know, once you've identified what, um, you know, gene or what segment of, of DNA is broken or is, is causing this very severe uh, condition, um, trying to fix it in, in, in a, a child or an adult is much more expensive uh, clinical validation process. You basically design a vector to be able to actually, um, you know, go, go take that broken gene and, and repair it and fix it and, and, and insert a, a functioning, a functioning um, uh, you know, gene that's going to produce the protein that, that doesn't result in this, in this condition, um, you know, being so debilitating for a, for a child or for an adult. So it's basically the, the process of actually developing a therapy is um, extremely involved, right? It costs, um, you know, on the order of a, of a billion dollars, you know, um, yeah, a huge amount of effort for, for, for pharma companies to be able to pull off um, versus if you're able to screen um, screen embryos or, or couples for being for carrier being carriers for this condition, um, you know, IVF allows allows you to um, pre- prevent that for a much lower cost, right? You just have to be able to uh, detect the embryos that are going to, um, yeah, re- result in the, um, um, yeah. you know, this pathogenic mutation as opposed to the ones that don't carry it. Yeah. So what are some of the other scientific and technological challenges that are kind of on the frontier, uh, you know, right now of related to this kind of thing? Yeah. So there's basically like, so the statistical genetic side. So basically when you have, um, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of, um, uh, of people sequenced, how do you take, how do you figure out which, which portions of the genome matter, which portions of the genome are going to confer increased risks versus which, which sections of the genome are going to be protective for any given condition. So that actually varies across populations. So uh, like one huge challenge is that uh, we have a very biased data set. We have a data set of uh, predominantly um, uh, people of European ancestry and um, the informative markers actually change by ancestry. So we have this, this, um, yeah, we have this, this huge problem of, okay, given the fact that the data is biased, how do we make these um, risk scores as performative or as useful for uh, different ancestries? That's like a really open and active uh, research area. Um, I guess maybe one level up is just even on the people, you know, people of, of European ancestry, people who we do have a lot of data on, how do we make these predictors um, more, more robust? How do we make them, um, how do we make them more predictive for a given condition? Um, yeah, so I guess that's on the statistical genetic side. Then on the um, molecular biology side, you basically have all this uh, uh, chemistry that you can look into for how do you make um, the most, how do you get the most um, uniform high fidelity uh, genetic data off of a really small sample. So you, you typically when you're, when you're sequencing, you have uh, like blood 
or saliva where you have a lot of um, DNA to that you can isolate and basically if you have a lot of DNA it, it makes like the entire uh, process um, simpler so if you're really constrained with having you know a single cell or a few cells um, how do you adapt that process how do you how do you build new tools in order to um, yeah sequence from, from such a small starting sample yeah so my understanding I, yeah. I, I only halfway understand or, or, or maybe 10% of the way I understand how DNA sequencing works but my understanding is you get a bunch of copies of the, of the DNA you, you end up chopping them up into shorter strands that are maybe you know 500 nucleotides or something and then there's a chemical process to sequence those but then you have to piece the whole thing together using uh, using a computer right using a program to kind of find overlapping segments but if you only are starting with a single cell you're only starting with one copy of the gene. So now you can't find those overlapping uh, uh, sequences. So how does this even work with a single cell? Yeah, yeah. So the key part is like the, the um, amplification process. So you're exactly right. I mean, that, that, that is, you know, is the uh, high level of how it works. So yeah, even when you have like blood or uh, saliva, you, you often use PCR. Uh, so yeah, a technique to amplify or like make more copies of the DNA in order to make, make the rest of the process work. So basically, okay. there's a there's there's a huge there's a huge problem, you know, when you have when you have a, a single cell of you know how do you amplify in an unbiased way, right? Because basically, um, yeah, that's basically where, where a lot where a lot of techniques go wrong is that basically since you have such a small starting sample, it's really easy to to screw that up to basically not amplify uh, uniformly so that you're getting mm -hmm. you know you're you're basically missing entire regions that that you need. So luckily, there's been a lot of interest in this space because of um, yeah, cancer genomics. So uh, basically tumor profiling. So basically in order to develop personalized therapies for cancer, um, yeah, lots of scientists have been really interested in, oh, like let's do like single cell sequencing, uh, not just of, of DNA, but of RNA, of um, proteome. We understand basically everything about um, the, uh, yeah, the mechanics of what's going on in order to develop a personalized therapy for you. Um, so yeah, I think that, that interest, that, that those, those billions of dollar, dollars of funding have definitely, um, yielded results. And, you know, fortunately there's like a lot of transfer value to, uh, yeah, being able to sequence a small sample, not just in a, you know, tumor biopsy, but also, you know, in a, in a single cell off of an embryo. Got it. Interesting. Okay, great. So, um, so today we're able to, to do genetic screening what are the challenges between where we are today and being able to safely and effectively actually edit the human genome? Yeah. So editing is a, um, is a very exciting, uh, yeah, is a very exciting process, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically, it's, it's all around like safety, like what's medically responsible. So, um, you know, one of the issues of, with editing is this thing called off-target effects. So the idea that, you know, when you cut one portion of the genome, um, so, so basically what you, the way you can think about this is like string matching. So like, let's say you have like cat, the word cat, and, and, and you want to, you, people, you guys probably like experience this, right? Like, let's say you have an essay and you're trying to like, you know, change uh, every occurrence of a, of a certain word. You're like looking for where you put, um, you know, whatever the word cat and you're trying to replace it with the word dog. Um, so sometimes when you do, when you do that, it, it, it ends up getting partial matches. I can't think of a word that has cat in it, but basically there's certain, there's certain words that maybe, you know, have, I don't know, I'm trying to think like maybe, you, maybe you're trying to get rid of the word bear and you have like brown bear and then that one you actually wanted to keep. So basically that's what's happening in the genome. You're, 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 you have this enzyme that's cutting this like specific 
um, location, but if you don't have enough like flanking regions that basically make your make your grep command or however you want to think about it work work properly, you end up um, uh, messing with regions that you don't want to. So that's like one of the um, that's one of the big issues that that folks are trying to develop. Folks are trying trying to um, make more precise and have have fewer off-target effects. The other issue with a lot of this stuff uh, is delivery. So basically, how do you get this vector? How do you get this um, like cutting machinery inside the cell of interest and not, um, yeah, not not outside <laughs> of the cell of interest? So you can. That should be easier with embryos, though. I would think, right? I mean, you have so few cells, and they're kind of right there. Oh, I actually think it might be hardest with embryos. So the oh, reason why? why is because so so uh, an embryo is is in a very very um, interesting precious state, right? So it's it's like totipotent, right? Meaning so it's like this um, it's in this state where can you have a few cells that are going to become every cell in the body, right? That are going to become uh, lung cells, heart cells, brain cells. So it's a yeah, we, we don't, we really don't understand really what's like how, how this process, we, we understand something about how this process works, but there's a lot that we don't understand about um, basically how, how do these cells figure out how to differentiate into basically how do these cell lineages form? How does, how does this population of cells know to become brain cells at this specific point versus this population of cells know to become lung cells? Um, that process of, of, of lineage separation, lineage differentiation is, um, We've obviously been studying it for a long time, but it's 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 not um, completely understood. So, yeah, the idea of creating a, like a germline mutation, so basically a, a mutation that affects, um, yeah, affects cells that are passed on across generations, is um, I would say probably not not ready for prime time. But I think you know within a within um, you know a hundred, two hundred, I don't know how how long you want to say like that. That is something that's going to become possible, but. Um, yeah, today, like from the from the technical uh, perspective, I would say that it's um, pretty difficult. There there has been some early studies in um, basically non viable embryos to see like what the efficacy was, and um, yeah, I think many of the problems are kind of the ones that, that we discussed is basically that um, it's it's hard to actually cut this cut the regions that you want, and then even if you are able to cut the regions that you want, um, there's there's sometimes um, damage or like misincorporation at other sites. Yeah. Um, when we think about curing genetic diseases by through some sort of gene therapy, gene editing, is that the, typically the sort of thing where you actually need to change the genome of most or all the cells in the body? Or is it the sort of thing where it would actually be more targeted? Like you have a bone disease and you only have to change the genome of the bone cells. Yeah. So it's really variable disease by disease. So there's not really any like generalizations I can say, but um, yeah, it's essentially like for, yeah, for some conditions you, um, yeah, like for basically for like a blood-based uh, condition or for like, a, um, yeah, basically for, for each specific disease, there's like, there's, there's really different um, um, techniques that, that would be required. So some, some, the types of diseases that are most amenable to gene therapy are ones that are very localized. Basically, the, the first gene therapy that was approved in the U.S. is called Lixterna. So this was for, for a form of um, a macular degeneration called uh, uh, retinous pigmentosa. So it, it basically degenerates the, the retina. And the reason why that was a good target was because um, basically the eye is like this confined region, right? Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a um, like viral vector that is in, injected right into the retina and is able to repair a broken... Um, 
or yeah, non-functioning gene in the retina and, and basically, yeah, there's actually a whole host of problems that, um, that come up with um, like delivery of these viral vectors. And um, yeah, the, the eye and the blood are typically the easiest to get to, for example, and the brain is probably one of the, one of the most difficult um, to get to. So I think the, the, the two big problems to solve are definitely around um, like delivery of these vectors and um, a misincorporation. So yeah, the ability to like safely target a specific region and not um, uh, yeah, attack or um, um, cause, cause issues in other parts of the genome. Mm -hmm. All right. I would love to keep asking you questions about biology for hours, but um, we're getting towards the end of the hour and I'd love to turn to some of the questions from our students and, and from the audience in general. So um, let me do that. They've been, the students have been sending me questions uh, through the Slack. So uh, let's see, um, a, a question from Juan David. Uh, what are your thoughts, uh, he asks, about sort of getting the foundation of a company in place and, and working on a project or a company? And in particular, he points out Patrick Collison, uh, when, we, when we talked to him, uh, had uh, advice that we should be wary of starting something too early. He actually advised maybe take a little extra time to kind of figure out what you really want to devote the long term to. So uh, what's your advice? I don't know. I think it's I think it's hard to um, uh, give give opposing advice to Patrick because Patrick's obviously crushing <laughs> his stripe. But I think yeah, my, my bias would be to start something as early as possible. I think see Patrick is I don't think that's true. I mean Patrick started so many different companies and from such a young age. So I don't know. I don't know why he's saying that. What what was his explanation for that? Um, let's see. I'm trying to remember exactly. I mean I think. Uh... It, it did feel a little bit like one of those uh, do as I say, not as I did uh, type of <laughs> type of uh, pieces of advice. I think that he, uh, I think it, that he was just sort of pointing out that when you go down a certain path, you can kind of get yourself, uh, I don't know, uh, put the, put the, you, know, you get some momentum behind a certain path. And uh, I think he was kind of um, advising that, uh, you know, yeah, that, I mean, that if you this, spend this, a little this, extra time, you know. Yeah, there, there's definitely truth to that. I mean, I think that, like, there's definitely this feeling of like responsibility that comes when you take money from uh, investors. That that's definitely true. So, yeah, I, yeah, I'm I'm not going to disagree that you know once once you've committed to something that there is um, momentum behind it. But I think advice for folks who are you know in high school, like super young, I would say um, follow your intuition. It's just like literally whatever you think is cool, just like start building stuff there and see where it goes and um, yeah, you can't really learn until you actually put it in front of people, actually try and get paid for it, actually try and, you know, just, you know, we can't learn anything just from talking to each other, right? We have, you have to, um, yeah, see it out in the wild. So yeah, I would yeah. say whatever you have, um, yeah, whatever, whatever strikes you, like whatever like makes your eyes light up is a thing that you should just go build now. And if your interests change later, then, um, you know, maybe I'm just more reckless. I would just say, yeah, just drop it and go to the, go to the next thing. I mean, at, at some point you should, you know, probably get more serious and like commit, commit yourself to like work on this, a specific thing for, you know, maybe first three years, then five years, you know, then 10 years. But I think it's hard as a 17 year old, as a 15 year old to think on that horizon, right? I mean, the longest project I ever worked on as a 17 year old was probably, you know, three years, which is a nonprofit that I was working on that I started you know, three years, yeah. three years before. And that felt like, oh, this is like such a long-term project, right? But 
you know, obviously researchers you know, spend, um, you know, two decades, three decades, four decades working on the same problem, you know, running a thousand different experiments as new, as new technologies come, come out and, um, and, and, and learning what the right, what, what even the right questions to ask are. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I would say like always be building, like I think always shipping things, always like having a bias toward action, like insp your inspiration is perishable, right? So you shouldn't, you shouldn't wait to, uh, to till you have enough experience or whatever just to, to start. I think that there's a yeah. lot of beauty and learning that happens just from starting. Yeah, I like that. Inspiration is perishable. That's good. Um, okay, great. We're, we've got about 10 minutes left. Let's, uh, we'll try to get through a few more questions. Um, so on your personal website, you list some of your favorite essays, and one of them is The Inner Ring by C.S. Lewis. So mm -hmm. Fergus wanted to ask about that. Why is that one of your favorite essays? That's so detailed. Um, well, I honestly just think it's really well written. I think that like my, the, the writing that I love the most is when a writer is able to distill and make concrete something that is very um, hard to verbalize or hard to even recognize. And I think that what uh, he talks about in the inner ring is, is a concept that I think all of us are um, familiar with or have felt. Um, maybe unconsciously. And I think that the way that he uh, reduced it to writing was just extremely impressive. It was, all, it was very, it had a lot of um, clarity to it. And I think like that's what I aspire to do. I mean, I, I, unfortunately I'm not a writer, but I used to really love writing uh, you know, in school. And um, that was the type of writing that always resonated the most with me is, is um, can, do you have, are you able to, to take something super amorphous and make it really uh, concrete and precise. And I think that, that essay does that. It's not really related to startup stall. I don't think. Uh, it's, yeah. uh, and it's related to life, but uh, yeah. hey, you're right. It is, it is really well-written. Okay, great. Lexley asks, uh, do you have any advice for teens who grew up single-mindedly aiming to pursue a traditional career path, but are now considering going down an unconventional route? Yeah. Um, I think you have to follow your gut. I think that if you're like, I don't know, in your heart and your, your instinct is to like follow the traditional path, then um, you should do that. I don't think that just because you see something unconventional and you think people are, are telling you to do the unconventional thing doesn't mean you should necessarily do it. I think like the, the point is you should always follow your gut and like trust your gut more. I think that like there's a lot of programming uh, from society, from your parents. Um, I don't know, I guess conditioning is another word that you could use for like what you should want. And I think that the, the main point I guess I'm trying to make is to like try and find your own like inner compass or inner gut for like what you actually want to do. Like, I think as a young person, it's really hard to remove yourself from like parental influence or like influence of teachers or influence of um, people who play like a large role in your life. And I think that, um, I don't think that the right decision is unconventional or conventional. I think the right decision is the one where you're going to be your most, um, authentic self. I mean, you, you, can, you can only fake it for so long, right? Like you can only fake being passionate about something for so long. So it's better to just skip the faking part and just go to the part where you're like, this is what really resonates with me and just getting in touch with that. I, I agree with that. The ideal amount of faking to do is zero. So <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> moving on. Do you agree with Peter Thiel's view that grand vision is conducive to startup building? What do you mean by that? <laughs> so, 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 you know, I don't know how much you've read of, of Peter Thiel's stuff, but he's, he kind of, uh, he pushes the idea that more founders really ought to kind of like have a big ambitious goal 
rather than maybe the opposite of that would be like just trying things and seeing what sticks. Now, Long, who asked this question, sort of hints at something that I've actually always wanted to ask Teal, which is like, this is not at all what you did with PayPal, right? <laughs> which is like, they went into PayPal with a totally different thesis and they pivoted several times and they, you know, they were originally going to like beam money uh, back and forth between Palm Pilots, right? Um, uh, which was the, the handheld device before the smartphone. And yeah. then that didn't work at all. And they ended up doing web payments, which was like totally not what they were expecting. Um, and then, and now, and, and now, but now TL says like, hey, everybody, you should really have a big vision and go right after it. Um, rather than try things and see what works. Um, I don't know. So what's your what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of like startup Kool-Aid and like it doesn't really matter. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I, I, I don't I don't want to say that like people, people with experience, like specifically, like I think operators, like someone who's actually executed on something does have um, yeah, like in a like an opinion worth listening to. But I think that there, there's just constant counterexamples, right? Like there's 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 you know, there's cases that support this idea that if you have a grand vision, then it's easier for you to build a team around it. It's easier for you to get funding for it, whatever. Like obviously Elon Musk is probably like the canonical example of that. Um, you know, SpaceX, like saying we want to go to Mars, like that's like, there's probably nothing more inspiring than like, hey, can we make humans interplanetary? Um, but there's also, I think, counterexamples of like things that start out looking really dumb or really silly that um, end up being extremely useful right i mean i don't think that um i think you know evan spiegel when he started snapchat was like running around like the Stanford shopping center like saying do you want to send a disappearing photo and everyone was saying no like who cares why right like he could have stopped at that and been like hey like i went i talked to 30 people and like 29 said this is a dumb idea or you could just be like no i think this is cool and i'm gonna like keep doing it and then you know i guess like push pushing it into um existence so i think that like i maybe that sounds like a non-answer, but I think there's actually some beauty to it, right? Which is that, hey, if you want to work on something, it doesn't have to fit into some mold of like what someone says, like the startup formula or like the success formula is. Like you should just go do it and see where it goes and write your own story, right? Like maybe you're the counterexample to like every other like model that's existed. Like, well, isn't that super exciting? Like that's like definitely something to to write about. So I don't know. I think, yeah, you should just look at that in an empowering way. Like you don't have to you don't have to fit any mold, like just go do the thing that you really want to do and just see what happens is would be my advice. Great. Uh, okay. Another article on your website. So one that you wrote was the, the neuroscience of free will. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned an argument between psychology professors of, uh, I guess, how to formulate free will, which is I can choose otherwise in the moment or in the future. Uh, so Benjamin wants to know, what do you, what do you think about this and why? Oh, do I think free will exists? Um, or, 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 yeah, and, and, or is it in the moment or is it in the future or uh, both or neither? Yeah. What do you think? I think that um, the most, I think that from a like experimental perspective, all of these um, results are super interesting. And uh, I think that the, the reason why I think they're so interesting is kind of what I wrote about at the beginning, which is that sometimes science um and like technical results exactly uh exactly conflict with what our like sensory experience is right like none of us can like really sense gravity right we don't realize that people are on the, that like you know we're all stuck to this like giant sphere right it doesn't even really you know make sense that oh, people are on the opposite side of the world are also being like sucked in uh by gravity right like we don't realize that you know our hands are um 
are mostly empty space, right? They feel solid, right? But like, you know, we know because of Adam that like, yes, our hands are mostly empty space. Um, so there's all these like extremely um, non-intuitive things that uh, we as humans, because of like our vantage point, our sensors um, can't detect. And that's what I think is interesting is basically all of these observations about free will are in conflict with, with our lived experience, right? We all feel like, you know, I make, I have this, this um, intention to do something. And then the, um, yeah, my, my actually carrying out that action follows the intention. And then what I think is really bizarre and crazy, right? Is that all of these experiments show that the opposite is occurring, right? That you can detect um, what someone will intend to do before they know that they intend to do it. And um, obviously like the research also shows that, you know, the, the belief in the existence of free will affects your, your actions. So it's obviously um, beneficial to uh, an individual to, you know, have this sense of agency and believe that they do have free will, even if there's like some ex like early experimental evidence over the last like 10 or 20 years that, that um, observes the opposite. Um, so yeah, I don't think I have like a very like firm belief one way or the other about, um, you know, which experimental results are going to pan out. I think that the opinion of the neuroscientists seems to be converging on, uh, uh, you know, no, we don't have it in uh, the moment, but maybe we have it in the long term. But I think for me personally, I, I'm kind of more of a pragmatist. I just want to do the thing that makes me most effective. So kind of regard, I think regardless of how, of how it turns out, I'm, I'm always going to believe that I, uh, you know, have, have, a, have some agency and effect on it. All right. <laughs> Great. That's a, probably a good note to end on. And we are uh, out of time. So unfortunately, we won't be able to get to the rest of the questions. But uh, thank you, uh, everybody for showing up today, making this a great event. And thank you, Noor, so much for spending the time with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was this was awesome. And thanks so much for, for putting this on. I think this is like, definitely the program I'd want to be in if I was in high school. So I wish I could go back in time and, and be in your class. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you should sign up for the adult version it launches this fall. Awesome. <laughs> Will do. All right. Thanks so much. For right. Have a good yes. one. Thanks, everybody. Take care.